You're listening to the However Improbable Podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Cole. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, we're talking serpents, sinister stepfathers, and sisters dying in the dead of night. The Adventure of the Speckled Man is usually considered one of the best home stories, and one of Conan Doyle's favorites. If you want to listen to our audio adaptation of the story, go back an episode. We'll be here. So I have a hypothesis about this story that I want to pose to you and to our listeners. We're airing this right around Halloween, so maybe that's why it's on my mind. But I propose, other than The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Speckled Band is the closest that Doyle comes to actually writing a horror story, specifically a haunted house story. And it's really a quintessential home story. It's suspenseful and gothic to the bone. It features a rather domestic villain and a sympathetic client, all wrapped up within a locked room mystery. First published in The Strand in 1892, and then included in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes later that year, Doyle himself said that this was his best story. It's one of our favorites, too. It's April 1883, two years after our study in Scarlet, very early on in these characters' relationship. Watson narrates from 1889, by which time he has 70 cases with Holmes under his belt. But it's only now that Watson is freed up to tell the story after the client's death. So one morning, a woman named Helen Stoner comes to Baker Street after hearing the same mysterious whistling sound that heralded her sister Julia's death earlier, before the story begins. And after traveling to her stepfather's estate, a man with the particularly cartoonish villain name of Grimsby Roylott, (laughs) Holmes deduces the crime of murder and attempted murder by poisonous snake. Holmes and Watson spend the night in Helen's room, and when the snake slithers in to kill, Holmes drives it back through a ventilator where it bites and kills Roylott instead. So there's a lot to this mystery. There's a rather racist red herring, the imperial gothic, and a locked room mystery, of course, which... Sarah, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so this is a really classic example of a locked room mystery, which is a pretty well-known and actually one of my favorite sort of mystery story tropes. It's a crime that's committed in seemingly impossible conditions, in a room with no obvious means for the criminal to enter and to exit. When they're done well, they're really good because it reduces the entirety of the mystery into one little space, like a mystery novel microcosm. So, like we said, there's a lot going on. But before we investigate the story further, let's hear from our narrator Kira's response to the speckled band. My experience with Sherlock Holmes has been mainly secondhand adaptations. Uh, The Great Mouse Detective is a big favorite. Um, I always loved Data uh, and his fascination with the character of Holmes on Star Trek The Next Generation. In terms of my experience reading Conan Doyle uh, as as an actor, (laughs) Sweet Shakespeare those sentences. They are so long. When when there are commas, great. When there are not commas, oh my goodness, you just have to read it and figure out exactly where the pause would be in a normal way of speaking, but um, <laughs> lovely and far easier to parse visually, I think, uh, reading than, than to speak it out loud. 
I did a bit of research into different Conan Doyle short stories before I asked uh, if I could read The Speckled Band. I thought this one felt very gothic and fun. And I also like that the mystery is there and it's strange, but it's more about the villain, Roylet, and the place, Stoke Moran. So what that place is like, how it's kind of falling into disrepair, very uh, fall of the House of Usher. Uh, Sherlock and Watson have some great interactions, a lot of whispering in each other's ears, which I think is great. But I think it's important to... Uh, recognize that it's very casually racist, uh, very much in sympathy with the, the colonizing British. The idea that Grimsby Roylet is um, made worse in his whatever natural tendencies he has to evil and to do horrible things are made worse by his time in foreign lands, I think is really telling about Conan Doyle's uh, ideas about Africa, India, a bunch of different places that aren't the good stock of England, and the idea that the influence of the time that he spent in other countries, um, in other places that aren't England, would contribute to that, would make him like that. Um, horrible, and I think worth criticizing. So, yeah, the first thing I want to talk about with this story is... So, I mean, it really has all of the elements of a haunted house ghost story, except there's no ghost. There's a snake instead, right? There's two sisters who live alone in this kind of crumbly mansion <laughs> with their evil stepfather. And one of them dies mysteriously in the middle of the night. And she utters Extremely terrified vague. last words that are mysterious and don't make any sense. Very classic in that it is impossible to gain any sort of actual information from her dying words. You know, I feel like it's very, like, gothic, very mystery to to be like, oh, my dying words are completely indecipherable, and it's your task to discern what I actually meant. <laughs> and her sister literally thinks that she dies of fright. Right. Um, and the sisters, they're kind of stuck in this house with this man that is really awful to them. We know that Roylat is their stepfather, but their mom dies. And so the sisters in Roylat have been living at Roylat's ancestral estate since then. Stoke Moran. Yeah, so it's very gothic, not only in the sisters' death, but in the estate and the house. Doyle describes this house as looking, because it, it's like a house with two wings stretching out on either side. And he says it looks like a crab. Oh, because of like its pincers, yeah. I guess, are the wings of the house. So it's like that's one thing. Like I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. And it's very dilapidated. Fine. It is run down. <laughs> so like in the in the story, Conan Doyle is like, oh, he's got all of these um, Asian animals in over from India into the estate. And both of our footnotes were like, um, well, actually, baboons are from Africa, but okay. I So I'm not entirely convinced that Conan Doyle knows what a baboon is. No, and I don't think he's done any research ever. Literally none. Which, you know, there's some level of confidence of like, live your life like Arthur Conan Doyle and just be like, yeah, this baboon is from India. This baboon is from India, and these fairies are definitely real. And Watson was definitely shot somewhere on his body. Maybe once, maybe twice. Maybe. Who can say? The details and the circumstance of this mystery, I think you could really take them out of the mystery that they're in and stick them in, a, like, on TV in a horror story. And, you know, you could get The Haunting of Stoke Moran as Mike Flanagan's next, right. like, creative television endeavor and it would fit just fine but then 
you have a detective researching a murder, which ends up being a snake bite rather than a ghost. Right. So that's, I, this is one of my favorite tales. And I think this is why is because I like haunted house ghost stories so much. Oh, it yeah. really fits a lot of those tropes. It is. kind of scratches that itch for me. Mm-hmm. It is definitely, like you said, the most gothic. So aside from The Hound of the Baskervilles, this is definitely the most gothic. And it has all of your classic gothic tropes. It's got a woman in distress, which I think is more complicated than just being a damsel in distress. There's something to be said about the gothic shining a light on women's social conditions rather than just victimizing them. Do you want to define what you're talking about when you say that for people who might not be familiar with that word? Because it's what you study, right? So the gothic essentially started with the Castle of Otranto, which is a mid to late 18th century novel. And then it sort of snowballed from there. You get a lot of late 18th century novels by Anne Radcliffe, who is sort of considered the mother of Gothic literature. There is a bit of a pause in the early 19th century, but then it got really ramped up in the time period that we are talking about here in the late 19th century with texts like Dracula with the Beatle. Of course, you know, earlier in the century, you have things like Frankenstein, works by the Bronte sisters. The Gothic is a genre of fiction that deals in transgressions and otherness, whether that's racial or religious or gendered or otherwise. It's spooky, yes, but it's a lot richer than that. Its primary tensions are most notable in the unburial of the past, power and constraint, terror and the sublime, the uncanny, and the grotesque. Much of it explores gender and sexuality, and I really do want to push against the notion that the gothic is simply victimizing women. I think it does a good job of highlighting women's social and legal conditions a lot of the time. Gothic heroines are actually given a lot more agency and complexity than you may see in fiction from the same period. I was going to say, I think this story is a good example of a woman in distress who is determined to figure out this mystery and what happened to her sister. Yeah, and, for sure. Um, yeah, she's an interesting character, Helen Stoner. Yeah, I do think this is an example of two particular types of the Gothic, most directly the Imperial Gothic and also domestic Gothic fiction. So here you have a story that is set in Britain, set in England, not set in a big spooky castle in southern Italy. So it is a very domestic Gothic tale. You do see a turn in the Gothic with mid-century sensation novels where it turns away from scary foreigners, at least to some degree, (laughs) until you get to the end of the 19th century when the scary foreigner theme researches with force with the imperial gothic which here you have as an example of reverse like fears of reverse colonization so you have all these fears of you know the the places that you've colonized seeping into your own nation so seeping into britain and affecting like degeneration and murder and disrupting family norms and all these sort of things which you definitely see in the story yeah i was gonna say that sums up the story pretty nicely on a number of levels you're at the height of empire basically but you also are at the height of the anxiety about it crumbling so you have that here through a lot of the transfer of the animals but then you also have it through roy lot himself who is british but has been 
sort of quote-unquote affected by the degeneration of being abroad in the colonies. I do want to ask you about Roy Lott, about your interpretation of what is going on in that household. When Helen goes to visit Holmes and Watson at Baker Street and is asking for their help, she says that you know her her stepfather is very hard and but he's been their father for so long however Holmes realizes that he physically abuses her too he notices bruises on her arms so I'm just curious Sarah what do you think is happening in that house obviously there's domestic violence happening there do you read anything else into it well so first of all Roy Lott our villain meets Helen and Julia, the the sisters, their mother, and she's a widow of, like, a British army officer in India. And they get married, and they come back to England, and then she dies. And then after she dies, he gets her money, and he doesn't have to work, because he's a doctor, and he was trying to find work. He doesn't have to. So first of all, I think he killed the mom, or somehow arranged for her death. It was a carriage accident. It was a little ambiguous. But that's one thing I I think is a possibility. Okay. And obviously yeah. he's hanging on to these girls because he lives in this rundown, his like family manor, which is falling apart and he doesn't have any money right, himself. Right, because he comes from an aristocratic family, but they mm-hmm. have fallen on hard times. Yes. So he's hanging on to them and he doesn't want them to get married and leave for their money. Um, it's It's one of those things where the domestic abuse is pretty obvious. Sexual abuse or sexual power structures are very implied. I mean, he's this man, he's not directly related to these girls, and he's controlling their lives. They talk about how miserable, and they don't have any friends, and they're never allowed to leave, and they spend all of their time taking care of him and taking care of the house. And then they both die, or almost die, right before they get married. Even if not implied, it is sort of there bubbling under the surface. There is that moment when Helen tells Holmes that she locks her door nightly, and she says that it's because there are, you know, cheetahs and things on the grounds. But I'm wondering, well, can a cheetah open a door? (laughs) I mean, a baboon probably can. I mean, (laughs) right? I mean, it's just a very uncomfortable moment that she explains, but still there's that lingering question and Mm -hmm. i don't think that we need to you know there's not like a a hidden answer here or anything it's just all about interpretation that's sort of lurking in the background of her him being their stepfather is also significant right because it does sort of suggest a distance between you know it's not incest right so it does sort of suggest that there could be like you said sexual hierarchy in yeah. play here where you know sexual abuse is used to assert control and power so yeah this guy is a, either way he sucks he's, he's awful horrible. It's really i mean no matter what like, yeah he's he's a particularly he vile. really is literally he like imports the murder weapon from india which certainly says something about like where the fears of of this story and things are coming from but the ho- horror is very domestic you know, it's taking place in a house and in this place that you're supposed to be safe. And then this girl dies unexplained in her bed, which that also is why it makes me think of like a, a haunted house story is that it's very like these people just trapped in this place and the horror is happening in a place that you should be safe and secure in. And you also often see sort of 
allegories for abuse in haunted house horror stories too so i think that's another like where these these storylines are kind of similar right and that is definitely emerging directly out of the gothic where mm-hmm. a lot you know like a ton like the castle of Atrano and the mysteries of udolfo those are both castle stories with a woman trapped in a castle and the patriarch is being violent and there's hints of the supernatural if not forthright supernatural happening and there's no supernatural in this story but it does feel like there could be almost it's got that vibe the Mm -hmm. whole trope of the haunted house and the vying of power within the haunted house is coming out of those gender dynamics so you just have a natural evolution here of it going from castles and crumbling southern Italy to your home in the middle of England, which makes it more frightening in a way, right? Because there's not that distance. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you are British, there's not that distance between saying, like, those scary things only happen abroad. That's also what Jane Austen does in Northanger Abbey, which is a satire of the Gothic, And so you have the male hero of that story. He chastises the heroine saying, like, she's thinking all these horrible things are happening, you know, that the, (laughs) this man has murdered his wife. And he's like, think about what country you're in and the fact that you are Christian and that we're all Christians. (laughs) That would never happen here. And he's like, you're being too fanciful, you're reading too many gothic novels, you're reading too much Radcliffe, that's not going to happen in Britain amongst all these Christians. (laughs) Right? Sure. Yeah. So, but that is like the headspace, right? So then it becomes Mm -hmm. more frightening to readers, especially contemporary readers, when you are saying these things are happening in Britain. These scary things that are happening abroad are actually happening by your fathers and your husbands and people that you know right here at home. Mm -hmm. So what I like about this is that Helen, the lady who hires Holmes and Watson, actively tries to to find a solution to this mystery for herself and goes to them for help, kind of out of her own free will, to get some resolution to what happened to her sister and also because her own life is in danger and, and assists them in their investigation. So she's very active in spurring the story along and finding a I think that she is really interesting not only because she is really driving the force of the action in the story but also because Holmes gives her directions and she has to do a little bit of if not sleuthing on her own she has to help the trap occur yeah so she has to pretend Mm -hmm. that she has a headache and she has to go and pretend that she's sleeping in her bedroom while she meanwhile escapes the house And so she is really instrumental in solving the case. Oh, one other thing I do want to mention about Roylott is, Mm. well, actually two things. One, we already mentioned this, but he comes from an aristocratic family, right? So there's class Mm -hmm. implications here, again, because Sherlock Holmes stories are almost always aligned with the middle class and their values. So you have someone who is trying to reassert their aristocratic power by gaining money, but the story is, of course, opposed to this occurring and kills Roylet off at the end. So basically his line is dead as far as we know. The other thing I wanted to mention, which I think is more interesting and is more in tune with the Imperial Gothic here, is that Roylet himself is 
representative of these anxieties of reverse colonization the way that he goes to india and just becomes like a complete mess he goes off his mind he kills his butler when he's there yeah he like beats his butler to death right in a really violent way yeah and and then he returns to britain and he's got all these temper issues i can really go down a rabbit hole here but very simply at the same time that Europeans are really nailing down huh. specific categories and attributes of racial distinctions in order to justify imperialism and colonization, it's also weirdly mm-hmm. loosey-goosey. The Victorians, for example, conceived of race as also contingent on where you were born, the climate you live in, and so on. So you see this in Jane Eyre, and you see it here. There's a conflation of race and climate that Conan Doyle emphasizes, and it makes Roylott more violent. He's basically, quote-unquote, invaded and degenerated by the colonized nation that he's in. It's a very messed up point of view. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a throwaway line where it says that a temper Mm -hmm. has long run in that family line, Mm -hmm. but when he left, it made it worse aristocracy is bad and also going to india is also <laughs> bad corrupt yeah. your soul like because conan doyle Yikes. writes that his temper quote-unquote intensified by his long residence in the tropics unquote you know that's that larger idea of being affected by going to the colonies and then bringing it back home a mess yeah Oh, God. This whole thing about the Romani people, too, it's just, like... It's a very clumsy red herring because it's so obvious that the doctor is the villain because his name is Grimsby Roylott. <laughs> Watson mentions it, right? And he's like, well, hey, what about this theory? And Holmes is like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Can we? I want to talk about Holmes and Watson's relationship. Yes. Let's turn to more cheerful pastors, as it were. <laughs> Leave Grimsby Roylott behind. I'm just going to keep saying the word name Grimsby. It's a... Because it's so funny. Great name. Grimsby <laughs> Roylott. Okay. Um, I've got it out of my system. Let's do it. So I do have a question for you. This is set two years after A Study in Scarlet. Yes. And wow, have things developed, both yes. professionally and personally. And this is really where I do see the fruits of our decision to go chronologically are immediately coming through because I think it's so fascinating for this to come immediately after the novella. But I'm wondering, why do you think there are no stories between these two? Or what steps do you think were happening between A Study in Scarlet and The Speckled Band to get where we are now? That's a great question. That they these guys, I mean, in the last story, they kind of just started working together. And then this one, they've made the leap where it's very natural for Holmes to be inviting Watson along in his cases and he pulls him out of bed at seven in the morning, which Watson is very irritated about, but still happily goes along and gets up and, you know, foregoes breakfast to meet this woman in order to hear this case. And so obviously that they've been doing this pretty consistently in the last two years. And so that probably is part of it is negotiating like, yes, I am genuinely really interested in following you around and being involved in this. Do you think it was like after a study in Scarlet, Watson was just like, I am now your companion. Let's go. Or do you think it was more gradual? 
I think it was more gradual because we're trying to characterize Watson. It took him like six weeks to figure out what Holmes did for a living. That's true. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, like obviously Holmes invited him on the Lauriston Gardens case. But I think for him to like, for him to go, no, no, can I stay and listen in and hear what's going on? That would have been a big step for him kind of early in their friendship and early in when we meet him. So it probably took some time. So where we are in the speckled band is that Holmes introduces Watson as his, quote, intimate friend and associate. So anything that can be said in front of Holmes can also be said in front of Watson. Now. Yeah. So they are detecting together. And Watson is very, very into it. He says, I had no keener pleasure than in following Holmes, which is such a development from him taking his little notes in his armchair during a study mm-hmm. in Scarlet and be like... Early on in a study in Scarlet, he's not quite convinced that Holmes right. is the real deal. Um, I think study in Scarlet convinces him, but this, I mean, there's no doubt. He's just like, I trust you implicitly and I'm going to do what I can to help you, and I know that you're going to make the right decision to figure out what's happening here. And then we get this moment later on when Holmes is genuinely very concerned about bringing Watson along for the ride. Yeah. Which I think is very telling from both of their perspectives. Both. So it's this exchange where they're in the inn, figuring out what they're going to do, Mm -hmm. right? And Holmes says, I really have some scruples as to taking you tonight. There is a distinct element of danger. Watson says, can I be of assistance? Holmes says, your presence may be invaluable. Watson says, then I shall certainly come. So this is the first of many examples of Watson just sort of going, no, I'm going to do what you need me to, no matter the danger, because you're asking me to. Summed up in a nice little a nice little moment between them there. It really is such a nice moment, especially when you are looking at it chronologically to sort of see that transition in the relationship to two people who are sort of circling around one another in A Study in Scarlet to two people who are really working in tandem. It's really nice. Yeah. It's just nice. That's a good way to put it. And then you also see this development of Holmes's professional life in comparison to A Study in Scarlet, at least. Watson, as our narrator remarks on, and then Holmes himself remarks on too, is that this case stood out to him in the cases they were taking this time period because Holmes was only really interested in following cases that were really bizarre or strange and mm-hmm. this one was extra bizarre and extra strange right. at this point he doesn't care about money yes. anymore so clearly that suggests that they've had a lot of successes in the past two years i think holmes sort of functions under this assumption that every once in a while someone who he really wants to pull money out of is gonna pay for like a year of rent or something whereas people who can't necessarily afford his services are going to you know He's going to let them off the hook mm-hmm. here. Yeah, because Helen herself, who asks for his help here, she says, like, I don't have any money to give you right now. I'm going to get married, and then I will be able to pay you later. Mm-hmm. And Holmes is kind of like, no, no, no. This is such a great mystery that I don't even care. Right. We'll talk about that once I figured it out. Yeah. Like, it's not even on his mind. And so in this story is the first one where Holmes has this notion of the profession being its own reward, which I... Again, I think it's so interesting in comparison to A Study in Scarlet because he is a little bit bitter about the police taking credit for the work. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this story, it's all about just the experience. The police are not in this tale at all. Holmes doesn't necessarily care about putting criminals in prison as much as he does the experience of problem solving. And I mean, of course, he wants to help people. But it, I think, is a little bit 
selfish in that it is such a thrill for him to engage in and it is something that he can set his mind on which again is going back to this idea of like you know when he's not problem solving he is quote-unquote down in the dumps yeah right so it's a way for him to occupy his mind and it's just fun too and he can help people while he does it you know that's like a nice benefit yeah so this i think is interesting because when you contrast this with what Roylot calls him when he pays them a visit, I love which is one of my favorite. We should talk about this whole scene, but um, what he calls Holmes, he says, Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. And a jack in office is sort of like a petty government official. So this is so funny. And then the Holmes being like, um, shut the door on your way out. The crocuses are nice for this time of year. There's a draft. <laughs> it's very funny. To insult him, this guy who has heard his name says that he's sort of a petty police officer. And that's the insult right. that he tosses Holmes' way. So that's funny. Even though the police never show up in this story. Yeah. Which is a conversation in of itself. So this concept of justice existing outside of law enforcement comes up in A Study on Scarlet. We've talked about it a little um, mm-hmm. with Jefferson Hope, but it's really relevant in this case. And right. I think it's interesting that this case is so early. But I really forgot about that last line, mm-hmm. which is very, very good. Yeah. So at the very it. end of the story, when when they're on their way back and Holmes is explaining and filling in all the little details that Watson has missed out on, he um, says that I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Grimsby Roylott's death. And I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily upon my conscience. So he's not too upset for this guy. No. Gets bitten by his snake. Some good old-fashioned vigilante justice. Yeah. Here. And what's particularly interesting is, presumably after the story ends, they wake Helen up and they go, oh, your stepdad's dead. Sorry. He was definitely going to murder you. So you dodged a bullet. You're welcome. And then they go, what? on earth are we going to tell the police? Because they cover this up. They, like, invent a tale that he died by accident. He got bit by his snake by accident. And they Mm -hmm. tell that to the cops. It's pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're keeping a venomous snake in your office in a safe, it's probably going to bite you at some point. Um, But the truth does not come out until Watson decides to publish this story after Helen dies. And, it, like, very early on in the story, he says there have been some questions about the specifics of how this guy died, and we've always kind of <laughs> stuck to our tale, and now I'm revealing the truth. Holmes not only indirectly murders a dude here, he they lie to the They police. straight up cover up a murder. Yeah. Do you think that the police let Holmes get away with this kind of stuff because he's valuable to them? Probably, yeah. I would say so, and then also just because Dr. Roylott just had such a terrible reputation... Mm-hmm. It seems like people were probably just like, ooh, he's d- okay. Now we can, like, not worry about him anymore. Right. Like, no one's There's... mourning him or really concerned that he's deceased. So they probably let that one go. So while Holmes and Watson are at the Crown Inn, Holmes references Palmer and Pritchard, who I researched them very briefly, and I found out that they were doctors who also murdered people and were respectively hanged in 1856 and 1865. They had nothing to do with each other except for that we were both doctors and that they both murdered people, but it wasn't like a Harrenburg situation where they were doing it together. Okay. 
Charles Dickens <laughs> called Palmer the greatest villain that ever stood in the Old Bailey. So apparently oh. he was quite famous. Yeah. And Pritchard was interestingly the last person who, to be publicly executed in Glasgow. Okay. This, I think, harkens back to Holmes's immense study of all the horrible crimes of the century. You know, Watson says in A Study in Scarlet that he knows every detail of every horrible crime that has ever occurred in the century. <laughs> Which made me be like, oh yeah. <laughs> I really like that scene. The exchange where and they're sitting in the window sort of looking at the house and they're smoking their pipes waiting to go break into the property. Yeah. And Watson says something like, you definitely saw a lot more in those rooms than I did. Holmes says, no, I didn't. I just deduced a little more. Right. I love the breaking and entering. It's I know. It's always a favorite. I love when Holmes and Watson break and enter. Yeah. Definitely a hobby. It is theirs. a hobby. I think this is an interesting note about Watson's character and how willing mm-hmm. he is to go along with all of this and really trust Holmes, but also just to like be involved in this plot. Let's sit in the dark in this room for three hours and you can't move and you can't have any light on. Like there's a considerable amount of trust, but it's also a pretty wacky way to spend your evening. Holmes at least is doing this stuff because it's his profession and because he has this like right. love of the case. For Watson, it's this is just like his hobby. It's yeah. I have, you know, I have a really hard time nailing down when Watson is actually in practice as a doctor, (laughs) because it seems really convenient when he is and when he isn't. He's, like, really lackadaisical. I don't think he's working. how many people he sees. Because he seems to be able to drop everything and just go Mm -hmm. engage in his little hobby of breaking into people's houses and beating snakes to death. Right. That just tells us something about... That this is, like, for fun. You know, This is, these are his off hours. Yeah, I mean, he's having a good time, frankly. Yeah. There's a nice moment, too, in... It's that scene when they're in the Crown Inn, when they're talking about the crime, when Watson says, we are only just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. I just love that mm-hmm. moment because, again, it feels so gothic and it feels so, like... The atmosphere of the story is so good. There's so many good oh, little so moments it's occasionally funny and it's really dark. It's just such a wonderful ambiance. It's like you have the baboon. Yeah. The line where Holmes <laughs> goes, it is a nice household. That is the baboon. It is such a quintessential Holmes story. It's mm-hmm. thrilling. It's very dramatic. It has a sympathetic female character who kind of gets to do some sleuthing on her own. And it's also just like blithely racist. Yep. <laughs> And that's, like, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes in a nutshell. Arthur, what is going on? So, Sarah, you did a little bit of research into adaptations of this story. I did, yeah. Um, Basically, every sort of well-known TV or film series of Holmes has done a version of this story because it's genuinely so beloved and I think it adapts really well to the screen. Except for Elementary. If we're wrong about this, let me know. I could have missed the Speckled Band Illusion episode, but I don't think I have. There certainly isn't one that's, like, really direct. Yeah, there's no there's no episode where, um, you know, Lucy Lou beats down a snake or anything. As much as I would like to see that. <laughs> Talking about, like, tense moments and, like, chemistry between people. Trying to film those two sitting in the dark. Oh, my God. Well, they do have a lot of episodes where they are sitting in the dark alone. That's true but not quite in this context. 
Not waiting for a snake to come in and murder someone. Yeah, but so Doyle himself wrote the first stage play of The Speckled Band, which was in 1910. It's the sixth Granada episode, and we both rewatched it before we recorded it's this so episode, good. and it is so it's so good. good. Everything about yeah. it, from Jeremy Brett waking up Watson, he's smoking his little cigarette mm-hmm. and waking him up and being like, you know, there's a client here. Yeah, and Watson goes, is there a fire? This is David Burke Watson, so it's earlier on. And the, um, excuse me while I satisfy myself to this floor. It's so good. And he throws himself down and, like, wiggles around. (laughs) In the scene with the poker, where he bends the poker back into place. His reaction to Roylott is so good. So good. There's some really masterful acting in what Jeremy Brett does as Holmes in this. Um, And he's really very funny. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I think he, sometimes, he again, is. back to what we talked about, people leave out. And I think that comes across very well. Yeah, and I really like how much they use um, the illustrations mm. in, like, the original um, illustrations from The Strand in Granada when they are, you know, employing them visually. Like, you have that, I think you have that moment, it's in Speckled Band, I think, when they're sitting across from each other in the train. Uh-huh. That is almost a one-to-one replication of an illustration. It's really nice. I just think it's so... Yeah. It, it's such a nice touch. They do a really nice show with that. There's a couple of moments mm-hmm. where that they pull that off. Um, there's also a little added moment in the Granada episode where they are... They're, like, investigating the outside of Helen's window. She's, like, taking them to the house. And Watson gets down and is crawling around <laughs> in some bushes. And Wa- Holmes is, like what are you doing? And Watson's like, I'm employing your methods. <laughs> and Holmes asks what he found, and Watson says, you're footprints, I believe. It's <laughs> really funny. Which, that's not in the book. It's it's an added yeah. little. But, like, with it's those cute. two actors, it's just, like, so charming and good. Mm-hmm. So are there any other adaptations of this story? Yeah. So All Sorts is, is my point. I mean, this has been – it's on television. It's been done in movies. It's – in there's a Sherlock Hound, so where Sherlock Holmes is an animated dog. I believe there's an episode of this in Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century. All right. And it was adapted into part of an adventure video game, which is a spinoff of the Ace Attorney series. Has a case based off of this. So that you can play it in the like Japanese video game as well. It's all over the place. <laughs> like, anywhere that you could want to consume the Speckled Band, it's there. Except in elementary. If you liked the Speckled Band, do you have any other books that have a similar ambiance that people might like to read? I do have one suggestion that may seem slightly weird when I first say it. Um, it is a modern historical novel that is set in 19th century Edinburgh. It's called The Way of All Flesh by Ambrose Perry. So this is... Okay, yeah, I, this. I, I think it it's only a couple years old. I read it last year, I think. So this is not about colonialism or empire or weird animal things, but it is about doctors and murder and mystery. So if you were interested in doctors doing dastardly things and the development of modern medicine, 
in the West, then this would be of interest to you. So it is a mystery cool. novel. Nice. And there's a little bit of murder. So if those things appeal to you, The Way of All Flesh is included in our bookshop affiliation. So you can find that at bookshop.org slash shop slash however improbable or by going to bookshop.org and then searching the however improbable podcast or just the words however improbable and the shop should show up. We also have a link to it through our website. So my question for people listening before we wrap up is, and you, Marissa, you can answer this too if you have an opinion, but I want to know what your favorite locked room mystery is. I don't. I, I have two. Okay, what are, you, what are yours? <laughs> Murder on the okay. Orient Express mm-hmm. by Agatha Christie, which is not only a locked room mystery, it's a locked train mystery. And it's just very, very iconic. I do love for, a train mystery. Yeah. It's a great one. And then the 1985 movie Clue. Oh, yes. Agreed. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Th- those are my my two. But I would be interested to hear what other people think. Because it, it pops up literally in every type of mystery fiction of all kinds. Because it's so great when done well. So you can share that with us on Twitter. Because we want to hear what you think. And where this one ranks. Join us in two weeks for our narration of the short story, The Adventure of the Gloria Scott. And a special thanks to our narrator, Kira Apple. You can send your thoughts, like I said, on the episode, on your locked room mystery, on what you want to hear us talk about with Gloria Scott, to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at improbablepod, and our website is howeverimprobablepodcast.com. You can find transcripts, the research plan, the episodes, all of those books that Marissa talked about. We'll put that information up there and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Culp, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.